HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network since 2009. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. With more than 30 weekly podcasts, HRN has something for every food lover. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. Hey, 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 welcome to Beer Sessions Radio on Heritage Radio Network. This is our 14th year, and we're doing some special cider episodes this summer in honor of all the Cider Feast events that we're producing. Next week is Cider Feast New England in Haverhill, Mass. And an important uh, new, new cider maker that we've met uh, is Pete Andres uh, from Burdog Cider, and he's in Greenland, New Hampshire. We're going to do a one-on-one spotlight interview with him just because he's a for me, he's like the future, and he's an indie player, and we're going to learn a lot about what's going on in this little micro region uh, of southern New Hampshire. So let's have Pete introduce himself. Thanks, Jimmy. Uh, awesome to be with you again, and uh, thanks for coming to visit our place in New Hampshire. You know, what's very interesting is uh, just last year, uh, we did Cider Feast in, in Haverhill, Mass., and I had known some of the, I call them pioneers, like Steve Wood at Farnham Hill and Eleanor Legere. Um, of Eden Cider, but but you, you were one of the new introductions last year. I don't know how I met you, but um, do you remember how we met? Because you're pretty new to the game up here. I think I do. Uh, it was through a, uh, a, a longtime friend of mine who's also a, a big name in the cider industry, Ryan Burke, uh, formerly of Angry Orchard, uh, now doing his own thing and, and uh, doing really well at it, of course. Uh, I think he introduced uh, introduced us when you were doing Haverhill or the Cider Feast last year. He linked us up and said, "Hey, you guys should do this together." And here we are. Well, since I met you, it's been really eye opening. We did a great cider supper in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, this winter with with your friend Giff from Butternut Farm uh, Cider House, and um, it just it's really I'm thrilled to be here. I want, I want you to know that it's this is everything you want to see in a farm. It's colonial era. We went off the highway, off the, off the small highway, and down a pretty much a dirt road with, with old trees, you know, f- framing it. And, um, you know, th- this is what you, you expect to see in a farm. So l- let's talk about how you got here, because I know you grew up in, in the industry. You, you, you grew up in, in New York. 
your backstory, and then we'll talk about this place, the colonial era farm, the soils, why this, why this location works for you. It's hard to answer the question how I got here without talking about where I grew up, uh, and that's in the town of Sotus, New York, which is in the fruit belt of Wayne County, sort of central upstate New York. Um, it's, uh, I, I guess it's fitting. I never expected it when I was growing up, but now uh, it's the source of how I am plugged into the cider industry uh, and also the apple industry more, more broadly. I grew up on an apple farm. My dad still runs that, uh, that farm back in New York. And a lot of the folks that I know in the industry and network with um, on a regular basis now have a similar background um, from, from upstate New York. Um, and so apples are in my blood. Cider came a little bit later in life. Um, in my 30s, I got interested with my brother, uh, my oldest brother, who's also uh, my business partner in the cider company. Um, he and I were very interested in uh, starting a cider company. Um, I mean, it, it started out just being interested in cider, drinking it and sampling different kinds. And um, one thing led to another, and we thought it'd be, uh, you know, really a neat lifelong venture to start a cider company together. Uh, and so that's that's kind of the quick version of how we got here. Um, and with respect to New Hampshire, my, my wife grew up in uh, in the area, in the seacoast of New Hampshire in Hampton. Um, she and I moved up here from Cambridge, Massachusetts um, in 2015. And I told her right from the get-go when we met about uh, over 10 years ago, I said I would like to run a farm someday. So that was her warning. <laughs> and now she's she's got a farm. Uh, it took us lots of, uh, several years, it took us five years to find uh, this location where we are now. And we feel very fortunate. Um, it's a beautiful property. It's got... Um, a lot of history here, which we're trying to, um, you know, maintain and, and have it be a central part of the whole story and the, and the business here. Uh, and we're, yeah, we're very thankful to be here. It's an amazing place. Uh, so there, tell us about the colonial era. The, the, there was a farm here. There's, there's soils. You know, what is it about this location that, that made you settle here? Well, first off, it was uh, a little bit of good luck just finding it. As I mentioned, we, you know, it took us several years to find it, uh, as is the case in, you know, uh, growing places that are desirable places to live. You know, real estate costs are high and there just aren't that many farms left. Um, and uh, we, we found a piece of property um, that uh, is 60 acres. Um, and for a lot of its life, it was a dairy farm. Um, during its, uh, it, well, colonial era into sort of modern times um, and uh, hadn't been farmed for decades. Um, but we are, we sit right adjacent to Great Bay, um, which, you know, drains into the Atlantic Ocean. And therefore, we've got some temperate um, climate here, moderated by, you know, the ocean. It's a, it's a good fruit growing region for that reason. Soils are rich. We've got some nice bay sediment um, that, uh, that we can lean on here to grow apple trees. Actually, just down the road, um, historically, up until you know, a few decades ago, was a, was a pretty big apple farm. And really, a lot of the seacoast was, was uh, spread with apple trees um, you know, not that long ago. And a lot of them have, been, uh, have sort of gone by the wayside and now might be house lots, but we're trying to to bring back you know some apple farming um, 
uh, to this area. One thing I've learned in last year, uh, between you meeting your friend from GIF from Butternut Farm Cider House and some of the, the indie farm networks up here that we work with on the Cider Supper, um, it's it's great to see this area, which is basically like basically suburbs of, of greater Boston, mm-hmm. that there's still farms and, there, and there's farming. Um, is, is there a reason for that? I mean, because like I've seen some historic farms where there's young people that are farming on. This, the farmer's markets up here are amazing. I mean, there, there is kind of this promised land of, of small farms that you wouldn't expect in, in a state like New Hampshire. This part of New Hampshire is, uh, is pretty agricultural, um, historically has been. Um, but it also, as I mentioned, it faces a lot of development pressure. Um, I think a lot of the old uh, farms, the, the ones that are hanging on, uh, at this point in time, the ones that have um, that are still around probably have figured out how to tap into um, some of the retail farming opportunities. Um, one of the, the one of the really nice things about this area is there's there's and others too. I don't know that we're terribly unique in this respect, but there's an appreciation now, and I think a growing appreciation for where your food comes from, and also the experience that you can have as a customer interacting with your farm and your food and, and maybe your farmer too. Um, and so I think a lot of the, the folks in this area are tapping into that. And to me, that's a really awesome thing to see. I think it's the future in a lot of ways for agriculture, especially in areas um, that do face development pressure and population. You know, there's competing land use interests and um, I think finding a way to balance um you know, uh, agriculture in those environments is really important. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm pleasantly surprised networks like the Three River Alliance, the Seacoast, the local markets. It's, it's, it's a really special place. And then I'm fortunate to come up here and meet with you and uh, visit some of the farms later today. So let's talk about your day because I, I, I drove down the old farm road. We're in the old farm. So steps like one, two, three, of, of, of you building this farm back into a cidery? Yeah. Uh, day to day, it's, uh, it could be a variety of things. I mean, there's a lot, I've got both farm work now we've got. Uh, so that those of you that want to open a, a cidery or a farm, there's reality. Yeah. The reality is that there's a lot to take care of. That's for sure. Uh, we've got 900 trees planted on the property now with 1100 more on order for the next two years. Um, our goal here is to do a bit of a combination of pick your own apple um, apples and uh, also growing fruit for cider for our own production. Um, and uh, we've got apple trees established now, um, some of which that'll that'll bear fruit this year. Uh, and we've got a lot more trees coming um, to to serve those business goals. Um, so at, you know, there's a lot of a lot of farm needs now. Um, and that's becoming more demanding. Um, and so day to day, you know, you could be doing tree training or mowing or, or um, other orchard maintenance, um, general property upkeep, all that stuff has to be done. And then in the cidery, that's a whole different different thing. I saw that you had some goats running around. Yeah, yeah we, we got a few goats, uh, uh, mainly for the kids and some entertainment. Uh, but yeah, we've got, uh, we've got some chickens and goats here to add to the farm dynamic. So uh, long term, what's going to happen with this, this wonderful barn? Uh, we we sit, are sitting in a, uh, a dairy barn that was built in the 1950s. 
the previous version, there was a barn here earlier. It had burned down. Uh, and so they basically built the, uh, the same version of it. Um, we are renovating this barn to kind of serve two purposes. One, uh, where we're sitting now, we're in, the, we're in the production facility. So we actually make cider in this barn uh, and we also store it. And then uh, in the front half of the barn, we're still in build-out mode, but we're uh, developing a tasting room there that's going to have sort of a rustic lounge uh, atmosphere where people can come and sit and taste some cider for an afternoon uh, and just enjoy themselves. Wow, it's really it's really great here. And I, I don't want to ask you about local ordinances, but I should. And I know that I've heard about um, some of the other farms around here. Um, when you're opening a, a place where people can come and either buy like a farm stand or, or a tasting room. Um, it, it, there are a lot of hurdles for that. Um, there are some hurdles. I think we're fortunate here in Greenland to be in a town that supports, um, you know, it's agricultural heritage. Uh, and I have seen that, you know, we've had the good fortune here of being supported, uh, in a pretty significant way by our neighbors. Um, and, uh, you know, there's a lot of folks in the, in the greater, um, well, just in the town here and also the Seacoast area who are pretty interested in what we're doing. Uh, they support it. Um, it's the type of experience that they, I think, are looking for. And what we're trying to really develop here is an agricultural-based business that sort of like respects the heritage of our town and, our, and, and the property here. And more than that, it's really a community-oriented place to gather to socialize. Um, and, in a, and, you know, we're not far from downtown Portsmouth. We're just five miles. But here in Greenland, it's a pretty rural area. And um, some of, you know, some of the neighbors have appreciated the fact that we've got a, a place to gather uh, where they can walk down the road and come and, and get together and um, get to know each other a little bit better and so forth. So I think overall, um, we've been fortunate uh, but certainly there are challenges, you know, when when you're developing a place that um, is open to the public and um, hopefully has some, you know, appeal to it. Uh, you know, you can have some uh, things to manage like, you know, traffic and other things that are just a change for people. Um, and I think doing that in a respectful way is certainly what we're trying to do um, here. We, we live here. We're on the property. So that's of utmost importance to us. And to our New York State beer friends, if you've ever been up to Plan B in uh, Poughkeepsie, New York, it's got that vibe. You kind of go off the road, and, and it's an old farm, and there's their house, and there's a barn. So this is definitely when it's when it's open. This is going to be a destination up here. Um, just back to soil, because I understand climate, you know, and and the the the, the balancing properties of the, the bay, but 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 what soil do you is good for you? I, we talked to some guys last week in, in Southern California. And and they're up in the highlands, and it seems like every seems like cider trees do really well in, in a lot of different different soils and, and elevations, right? It's true. Uh, one nice thing about growing apples is they 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 are fairly hardy um, versus, uh, or I guess I should say, relatives to some other crops. Um, and uh, but you know, so they can grow in a, in a variety of conditions. Um, I, you know, like I said, the climate's moderated here by the by the bay and by the ocean, and that's a really good thing for fruit set and maintaining, you know, bud growth year after year. Um, we do have, uh, we've got some, like any farm, we've got some advantages and disadvantages here. On the 
uh, and they sometimes they cut both ways. For example, like a lot of you, you, uh, you do not find a single stone fence on this property, which if you know New England and you drive up and down any country road, stone fences are there and they're there for a reason. They were moved out of the field to the edges of the field. Well, the fact that they're not here means we don't really have stones or probably more likely they're just buried by feet and feet of bay sediment. So it's great in the sense that we don't have stones and big granite, you know, to deal with like a lot of farms in New Hampshire. But on the downside, we've got pretty heavy clays that we deal with and sometimes they're poorly drained. Um, and that, that itself can cut both ways. Like if you've got a really dry summer, like we had last year, we've got soils that retain water pretty well. But on the flip side of that in the spring, when you're trying to plant trees, like in April this year, for example, we were supposed to do that with a tractor and a plow. We couldn't do that. Uh, we did it by shovel instead because the field was too wet to get into. So, you know, you deal with these things, uh, year to year, um, uh, but overall, we've, we're, we're blessed here, I would say, with a good climate for growing apples and definitely suitable soils for doing that as well. And I just want to say that the reason I'm here is because I really do like Pete's ciders. <laughs> um, you know, it, he stood out at Cider Feast. You know, he's got the sells them in 750, you know, glass bottles. It's got a wine quality. It, 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 it's up there with, with our friends like Farnham Hill in terms of, you know, he's getting whether it's good juice or, or, or good apples. Um, plantings, what, what kind of, uh, you know, cider trees are you planting? And, you know, what, what do you like to make cider with? Because I had your Kingston Black Reserve last night at a, at a little historic tasting I did. Yeah, no, uh, it's good cider starts with the right varieties, uh, that's for sure. Um, and I've learned that over my years of making cider. Um, we are planting, uh, in general, a few different categories here. One, as I mentioned, we're, we're looking at some pick-your-own um, part of the business as well. So we're, we're, we are planting some dedicated eating fresh fruit varieties. Um, and then on the other end of the spectrum, we are planting some dedicated cider varieties that you really wouldn't want to eat. They just they don't taste that good uh, or their texture is off or whatever. Um, and then we're planting a whole bunch in between as well that are that I would what call dual purpose apples. A lot of these are American heirlooms. Um, so like, for example, Newtown Pippin or Baldwin or Esopus Spitzenberg, um, Harrison. Um, these are apples that traditionally, like in colonial America, were grown um, for, yeah, people ate them, but um a lot more so people would, um, you know, basically mill them up and make them into cider. And so we're bringing back some of these old varieties that a lot of people have never heard of. Um, and we're mixing them in with some traditional, uh, English and French so far cider varieties, um, that are, that are grown traditionally in those, uh, in those cider regions in those countries. Uh, and then also some, you know, some dessert varieties, your gala, your honey crisp, et cetera. So it's interesting that you call those dual purpose apples because mm -hmm. in my brief time with cider, I've heard Newtown Pip and Harrison is Sopus Spitzen. What is it? Esopus <laughs> Spitzenberg. It's a mouthful. Yeah, usually the, the, those are noted as cider apples. So, yes. so that's really the background was they were dual multi-purpose apples. Yeah, those are American heirloom apples. Um, you know that you can. They actually are pretty good eating apples. Um, a lot of them are. 
but it just so happens that they're they're probably better known for cider these days because that's what people are doing with them. You can't find those on a shelf in a grocery store. And then which ones do you consider dedicated cider varieties? So we've got um, like Porter's Perfection is a good example of that. Um, we've got uh, some cider, some French uh, varieties coming, Calvo Blanc and Michelin. Um, and then some English varieties. I'm just rattling off a few examples here. Uh, some jerseys, chisel jersey, uh, coat jersey is another one. I actually don't have a lot of experience with that. Um, and then we've got some, uh, we've also got some crabs mixed in there. Geneva crab is a red fleshed apple that we're going to make a rosé with. Uh, and Dolgo crab and Wixen crab. So there's, um, there's a lot coming. We've got on just our three quarters of an acre that we've planted so far, we've got 20 varieties. Uh, and uh, like I mentioned earlier, 1,100 more coming in the next two years. Wow. So uh, for our friends out there thinking of starting a cidery, you're, you're in it whole hog, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're definitely we're committed here. Um, it's really fun. Uh, you know, I, I mentioned earlier I've got an apple background. I, my dad still runs the farm that I grew up on, and he's really dedicated to fresh fruit, and he's done an amazing job over the years getting that farm to be very productive, very efficient. Um, I'm really interested in applying those, uh, you know, really those same growing techniques to just a different set of apples, you know, ones that are, yes, eating apples, but also in the cider world. And um, with a, especially a, a sort of a keen eye towards the, like the history of uh, apples in America and also in other parts of the world. So, and, you know, when you have a farm and, and tell me if I'm wrong, you don't step lightly into anything. Like the, the reason I'm saying is you're talking about your dad and, and his, his history is, is eating apples. And I'm sure you've got people that come to the farm and there's that business. I met a guy in Massachusetts, Man Orchards. It's multi-generational. And last year we were talking and he said their big push was the last generation. They added uh, basically like for their farm stand, a baking and like ice cream facility. And that was a huge, that was a huge ad for them. And that's a big part of their business. And they said they're, they're not going to do that next ad to go to hard cider making. Um, I see what you're, what you're doing here. I mean, what would, like, let's say one, one of these o- older farmers or, or, or apple farms have to do to transform into a, a, a cidery? I mean, you wouldn't lay out a few of the items, but it's quite, a, it's quite an investment, right? Yeah, it's quite an investment. You know, it, to get into cider um, at, at a bigger scale, you're, you know, you're looking at tanks, um, which is uh, a big upfront cost. You're looking at your facility itself, um, which maybe some farms have and they don't, you know, have to spend too much on. Um, you know, the upfront cost is, uh, can be significant, um, but you know, the, the opportunity is there, I, I think. Um, and it can, you know, I think those upfront investments can pay off over time. Um, I think it's, you know, I, I'm a big believer in, in trying not to do, even though I, I'm doing a, you know, we've got a variety of things going on here. Um, I think farms, um, can, you know, sometimes if you get into something that you don't really know, that might be a, a problem for you. So you have to be a little bit careful there, but, um, in my case, I, uh, I, I thought it was very helpful for me to start the learning cider at a small scale. You know, I started in buckets and carboys and I still do that uh, on small batch stuff. 
um, before I got into tanks. And then I basically applied the same techniques that I learned at the small scale to, to a bigger scale. Um, and I was happy to learn that so far it's, it's working pretty well. Yep. Let's talk about your cider. So, um, I've, I've tried your, what's the country one? Country gold. Country gold. Last night I, I had from our cider supper in March at the press room in Portsmouth, I had a bottle of the country gold and the Kingston black. And I, I tasted them last night at a historic museum. Um, so you gave us uh, this the new country gold. Let's yeah. talk that through. Yeah, we were just um, we were just drinking uh, what's the new the new country gold, uh, which and it was from Tank, right? From tank. Yep, yep. You got to sample it before it goes into a bottle. Um, new new country gold, uh, or I should say, like twenty twenty two country gold was fermented last year. Um, is nine point two percent. It's the highest uh, ABV cider I've ever made. Um, last year was 8.9%. That alcohol is really coming from golden russet. Uh, it's the main apple in that blend. It's about 60% of the blend. Um, and it's a, just a high sugar, um, high, you know, nice fragrant aromatic apple. Um, the difference between the two really actually is um, in one bittersweet uh, that was in, in the 2021 version of that cider, it was Yarlington Mill, which is a wonderful English bittersweet. Unfortunately, it's also really susceptible to, to a, a tree disease or bacterial disease called fire blight. And my, on my dad's farm where these apples were sourced, he suffered a big fire blight uh, infection that essentially wiped out pretty much all of his trees. Oh, man, that, that happens, right? It does. And there's certain disease, uh, varieties that are really susceptible to fire blight. Uh, Yarlington is one of them. Dabinet, another great cider apple, is also very susceptible. So my dad lost several thousand trees. Uh, basically, all of his Yarlington and all of his Dabinet were gone due to fire blight. So I had to replace that bittersweet in last year's blend with Ellis Bitter. But that's another really nice English uh, bittersweet, um, and I feel like it's actually got a little bit softer tannins, um, and so I really like how this cider is developing. Um, it's a, maybe a, a touch more earthy um, and has some nice, nice soft tannins. It's just gonna. It's a great. Uh, it's sort of styled after uh, a prosecco, and it's, so it will be a sparkling cider that's just should be a nice sort of daily drinker. Wow, that's, that's a great intro. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back in a few minutes on Beer Sessions Radio. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City, Long Island, and Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. 
Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Hey, 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 welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio on Heritage Radio Network. It's our 14th year. We're here on heritageradionetwork.org. Support us, become a member. There's over 30 shows, food, farming, cocktails, and beer insider on Beer Sessions Radio. Heritageradionetwork.org. So I'm with Pete Andres at Bird Dog Cider in Greenland, New Hampshire, man. I came up to the farm, and I'm having a real uh, farm cider experience. So, Pete, thanks so much for having me. Um, and we, you poured a, a second cider for us. First, we had the New Country Gold from Tank. Yep. Like, that's what it's about, right? Coming to the cidery. What is it about June? Because everyone seems to have cider events in the fall. Mm-hmm. But if you're, if you're making cider from harvest, from new apples in the fall, you're serving it in June, right? Well, you, I'm serving it from Tank in June. So it's actually, you came at a good time, Jimmy. Um, because right now, the, like my, and not, not a, granted, not everyone has this schedule, but I make cider in a very traditional, simple, minimal intervention way. Uh, and that involves time. So I usually ferment in December uh, of a given year. I will typically age and tank uh, for about six months. So here we are in June, six months later, uh, and I'm about to bottle. Um, and I basically bottle condition everything. That means I create a secondary fermentation to make my, uh, my sparkle, my carbonation. So we're going to start bottling here very soon. At this point, you know, I feel cider's gone through a nice, um, you know, sort of maturation over the past six months or so. It's got, you know, a good flavor profile. It's drinking pretty well, but it's about to go into a bottle and have a whole nother experience, um, and so my ciders are once they go into bottle, I'm I'm a minimum of six months, um, but more likely twelve months from bottle to to when I really think that they're in their prime, and that's just the bottle conditioning process, um, and my my take on it. Yeah. So what was it about cider that that got you hooked on it? You know, the point that you were making it in small scales, and now you open the cidery because let's talk about the taste, how how you know the lifestyle. Yeah, I think it's interesting. For me, it was, um, I think I first got interested in it from maybe sort of a chemistry standpoint and like um, just trying to take a a raw product, an apple, make the juice out of it, and then somehow get something drinkable on the back end. So I was kind of more focused on like how to do that and and what processes, you know, you needed to to maintain to to end up with a decent result. Um, I have grown... Uh, to really appreciate, I think, um, maybe maybe first and foremost, like the historical importance of cider, especially in America. Um, that's not to say, it, I mean, the rest of the world, many other countries in the world, are cider takes on a, a bigger significance with respect to some history and culture. Um, but I'm really interested in, um, you know, kind of the role cider played in colonial America, um, it was a very popular drink for a long time, and it basically died away, which many people know. Um, prohibition kind of killed, you know, cider in the United States, and only recently, in the past few decades, thanks to some pioneers in the cider world um, and growing interest, uh, you know, we're we're getting this newfound appreciation for like traditional ciders. So our next cider, Kingston Black. Uh, way back in 2015, that, that that was kind of a golden era of 
of hard cider in my world because in New York City there was this great place, Wassail. And, and at that time, everyone who was making serious cider, good cider, fine cider, was coming into New York to stop by Wassail and, and got to meet a lot of the, the cider makers. Um, so Kings and Black, that was the first time I was exposed to, to a single varietal cider. And I remember we did a radio show about it. We did a tasting. Yep. Why Kings and Black? Tell me about it. I mean, Kingston Black is is well known as an English um, cider variety that's a bitter sharp. It's in that category. Uh, what that means is that, you know, bitter is the classification for uh, tannins. Like it's basically it's got, you know, a, a good amount of tannin. Uh, in the apple. And then the sharp part of it has to do with acid content. So you're getting both tannin and, and acid. Um, you're also getting sugar in that apple, which converts to alcohol, of course. So you get all of those basically ingredients that you need for making a good cider in good proportions. And that's why Kingston Black is kind of known as a single varietal, which is not common. Uh, there's not a lot of um, known single varietal apples out there. Although I, I, what I love to see is that people are experimenting and doing more and more single varietals in ways that, you know, you, you might not expect. Um, for example, um, South Hill cider, uh, in the Finger Lakes does a Baldwin. Um, that's like really fantastic. There's single varietal Newtown Pippins that I know of. There's definitely some single varietal golden russets. Um, and I think it's really interesting because in that way, like the cider world is really playing off of the wine world in experimenting with these different um, apples um, to, to make, you know, a single varietal drink that has its own qualities. So this, the Kingston Black, it's got a lot of structure and tannins. Um, and I'm looking at your little sales card here. Mm -hmm. Um, it says it's 7.6% ABV. So that's lower ABV than the country gold, yes. yet the mouthfeel feels like it's bigger. Yeah, totally. And that's your tannic structure that you're getting from that Kingston Black versus the Golden Russet, which is really a sugar bomb. Um, it's, you know, it's got a high sugar in that apple, um, good acid too. And so you, to me, um, that, that a Golden Russet blended cider or maybe even a single varietal is going to drink much more like a um, sort of light-bodied white wine versus the Kingston Black, which I, I don't know that it's fair to compare to a red wine, but if you're on the spectrum, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be more, it's going to be closer to, you know, something more tannic and complex like a red wine. Yeah, and I'll say we, we gave our first stab with the cider supper that we did in Portsmouth, a, a a little bit of cider pairing and, and with foods, and I'm looking forward to doing more. But now that we're talking about the, the, this mouthfeel and the cider style, let's talk about education of not just consumers but of, of staff. So you, 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 I know you're expanding in, in your local area the, the accounts that are top accounts, like nice wine stores and restaurants that are appreciating your cider, and you can give a shout-out to them. But also the, for that event, Cider Feast, you're training someone who's a cider enthusiast to – to help pour your, your, your ciders, what do you tell them about? You're going to have three, maybe three or four ciders at, at an event, and there's someone that doesn't really know your process. How, how, how do you train them on kinks and black? Let's do that. I think the, the, I don't know. I, I'm not an expert on this. This is going to be amazing. I'll tell you the way that I do it. 
which is uh, I think finding like the the shortest way to relate. It's all about relatability, right? And the and the simplest way to get there. You know, if you've got someone walking through a tasting tent, they they might be tasting twenty or thirty ciders um, that day. And so finding a way to connect with them and have them relate to the ciders quickly is really important. So for example, on Kingston black, I describe Kingston black as an apple wine. Um, and, uh, the, the reason I do that is, well, in my case, I'm, I'm, I've bottled it still, it's not sparkling. So, um, people can relate to that. And they're also sort of intrigued by it. They're like, well, what is apple wine? And it's a great question, by the way, what is apple wine versus cider? Um, I won't get into that right now. That's a whole nother discussion, but, uh, that, you know, it, people can relate to that sort of, um, you know, description of something. And, you know, to one other example, uh, you know, with, with my, uh, I've got a cider called Sons and Daughters, which is just a classic dry cider. And that's exactly how I describe it. It's, um, you know, not too complex, um, but not too simple. It's, but it's just sort of light, refreshing, drinkable, um, and it's your daily sipper. And people, that, that seems to resonate with people. Then ultimately, you really have to taste people, don't you? Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, and, and you do, uh, and you have to get them certainly past that first taste, ideally past the second, and into the third. And if you can get there with someone, you know, with an open mind, you've got a good shot at um, having someone appreciate a good dry cider. Do you mind giving a shout out to some of the accounts that, that you have in this area? Uh, I don't mind, although we we have, as you mentioned, we've we've been uh, making a, a big sales push recently, and we've got a bunch of new accounts. So at the at the fear of missing out of on anyone, uh, I I might not uh, name names um, so much, but we we have uh, put it this way: we've got um, we've got a, a a great selection of both restaurants and shops that we're now working with, um, and. You know, we we definitely want to have a a, a big on premise business here with the tasting room. Um, but in the meantime, since we don't have the tasting room open, we're just opening channels through restaurants and shops and trying to spread the word uh, about obviously who we are, what we're doing, but more so like about dry cider and what that can be. Uh, and people are, have been receptive to it. Um, and in the local. Um, the local angle that we have here in the seacoast um, with the deep, uh, you know, restaurant base and also these local farm markets and wine shops and so forth that we have, um, the whole local angle has been an incredible value add for us. And actually more so than I anticipated. People really want a local product. They support it. And we're really fortunate for that. Yeah, I mean, you're kind of a pioneer in this area, aren't you? Oh, I don't know if I'd go that far, Jimmy. Um, I, I'm, uh, I really think I'm standing on the backs of others who have been pioneers and uh, just trying to expand that into where we are. Um, I personally would love to see more cideries open in this area. I'm, I'm a big believer that a rising tide lifts all boats in this respect. It's like a wine trail, right? If we had more wineries around or when you have more wineries around, people tend to go to them more frequently because they can combine them uh, on a on a afternoon visit or whatever it may be. 
So um, hopefully we get to that point. Yeah, maybe it'll be the, the Great Bait of New Hampshire tour no, trail. No reason we can't, yeah. yeah. Hey, let's, that, that one thing you mentioned, two things. Um, you did a tasting recently, New England Apple Association, yeah. and I saw you had uh, some of our buddies involved, like something from Butternut Farm Cider House and some Farnham Hills Cider. Yeah. What's that organization? It's kind of neat seeing uh, organizations that are focused on cider and apples. Tell us about the organization and how it helps you guys out. Yeah, that was a terrific event. Uh, the New England Apple Association um, put on in, in uh, conjunction with Butternut Farm, who's run by a good friend of mine, Gift Burnap. Um, we, we grew up on neighboring farms in the same hometown. Um, they, uh, they put on a cider-themed tasting at an afternoon event at Gift's Farm, and it was awesome. It was well-attended. There were a lot of cider enthusiasts there. Um, as you mentioned, um, uh, Steve Woods was there from Farnham Hill, and Giff, of course, was there with his cider. We had North Country, which is another local cidery, uh, Hermit Woods, uh, which is a winery and cidery uh, in New Hampshire, um, and, uh, and Bird Dog. And it was great to see a uh, collaboration of New Hampshire cideries involved in an event like that. I'd, I would, I'd love to see more of that. Um, so hopefully we do it again. But I was really um, thankful to the New England Apple Association for sponsoring an event like that. Uh, it was great. You know, it's, it's great to see that, that these things are happening. So we have the Country Gold Cider, the Kingston Black Reserve. And now you're going to tell us about the Deacon John. Yeah, Deacon John's got a, a great story behind so it. So you're going to get that, and I'll, I'll, I'll fill in. So. You, you want to taste the Dink and John with me? Yeah, okay, he's it. also from Tank. This is quite an experience. Um, it's just like, you know, when you go to a brewery or distillery or cidery, you're in the room where they make it. And uh, I, I, it's, we talk about fermenting, and, and, and I'm going to ask Pete this question, but, you know, I, as you guys know, I'm not a home brewer. I'm not, I'm not a brewer. Um, but there's a lot of similarities. But Pete, tell us just about, you know, is there a philosophy of fermentation? You know, it's like, is what you're doing akin to natural wine? You know, you've got tanks. This does walk us through the process. Yeah, very much so. I, I it is akin to natural wine, um, and honestly, it's very simple. Um, I'll be the first to admit. I don't like. I I am. There are so many people who know way more about fermentation than I do, um, and I look forward to learning a lot more over my career. For the time being, what I do is very simple. Um, I, I don't like to intervene a lot. Um, I do use uh, selected yeasts. Um, I'm, I have not yet done native ferments on a big scale. I've done um, plenty of native ferments on a small scale, and I love them. So I'm going to, this coming year, that's going to be a new thing for me on a big scale. I'm going to do some, some native ferments in tank and see how they come out. Um, but I, uh, you know, I, I do, I use minimal sulfites uh, prior to pitching with a selected yeast. I basically let the fermentation go. Um, I try to keep it as cool as possible, but sometimes it gets away uh, from me that we'll, we'll make an improvement here for the, for the cider um, producers out there who are interested. We're going to make a, an improvement in the cider this coming year with a, with a glycol chiller for our tanks. So we can control fermentation temperature a little bit better. I try to keep that in the 50s, maybe. Um, 
right now I'm just kind of letting it go. Uh, but basically the primary fermentation happens in, in December of any given year. And then I will rack tanks after uh, the primary fermentation. And, and if all goes well, it'll be sitting in, a, in the racked tank for six months. You know, and I don't basically do anything to it unless I absolutely have to. Um, and then at the back end of that six months, I'll, if I'm happy with a blend as it was intended to be, I'll move to bottling. And then I, we also start, you know, uh, blending some stuff between tanks to come up with different things. And then, like I said earlier, I bottle condition. So once I, once I bottle and add a little dosage and do a secondary fermentation, I let that bottle sit for six to 12 months before we drink it. Wow, that's amazing. Blending, bottle conditioning, it sounds like some of the favorite beers of the world to me. Um, very happy to be here. So Dink and John, this is a colonial farm. There's a story. There's a story here. It's not for the faint of heart, so I'll put that warning out there right now because I'll tell you the full story. 21 plus, kids. 21 plus. Uh it is so Deacon John is named after a, um, a a guy who lived here on this farm. Uh, he was born in 1757, um, and I'll tell you about his fate in 1821. Um, so he was an American colonialist. Uh, he lived in our house. Uh, he resided here on the on the property, and he's also buried in a cemetery, a family cemetery out back. Um, his last name was Weeks. Uh, Weeks was a big family name here in Greenland, still is, uh, but they were they were big property owners, big farmers, uh, and their name you know was was common throughout town. So Deacon John, um, I'll tell you I guess first about his fate and then come back to you know how we're we're trying to honor him. Um, Deacon John was uh, w- employed a um, a farmhand who one day in 1821, uh, they got into a dispute. And uh, the short version of the story, it was really all I know, is that the uh, the farmhand announced that he was going to shoot Deacon John. And so he went, uh, they got home from somewhere, and the farmhand went and uh, got a gun, I suppose, and walked into the house and uh, carried through on his promise. And he shot Deacon John. Deacon John died the next morning. Uh, and from his wounds. So we honor his legacy here uh, with a cider that we call Deacon John, um, and it is made very much in the style of how colonial Americans would make cider, and that is very simply, they would, uh, you know, basically take juice, you know, or take the apples, they'd, they'd press it and make juice, they'd put it into a barrel, let it ferment, maybe sit for several months, and then they would basically drink it. So Deacon John is my barrel fermented, barrel aged on its lees cider, um, and all in one barrel, and uh, we we bottle it after the barrel, and that's it. So w- when you bought this farm, where did you get the story about Deacon John? Uh, it is no joke. Um, my mother-in-law found it when we were doing diligence on the property, uh, she found it. It is, it is documented in New Hampshire uh, homicide history. No joke. <laughs> well, that's a draw for the cidery, man. It's going to be fun. Yeah. You can get some uh, hist- historical people up here. Yeah. We've been following cider since 2011, really since 2015. And again, Pete, when I met you last year and, and tasted your cider and the little world that you're in, there's guys like... 
Josh at East Hampton and East Hampton, mm-hmm. Massachusetts, and, and and your friend Giff at Barnard Farmhouse. And there seems to be a lot of new. I'm, I'm looking forward to meeting Absalom Sida. I said Sida yeah. <laughs> out of Portland, Maine. There's a lot of new 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 faces of indie cider that are up here in New England, and I'm just really excited. And and thanks for you know being part of what we do and 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 inviting me up. Um, any, any questions or anything else you want to say about about what's going on here? Um, again, I'm I'm just feeling really great from the ciders. I enjoy them. We talk a little bit about the mouthfeel and and you know I I, I think that. Um, what I've learned in the last year in particular is that everyone that likes good food and good drinks, if, if I take a fine cider like Bird Dog or Farnham Hill and we sit and actually have it with a meal, they love it. Yeah. And I, I, I feel like cider is at that point where the fine cider, a table cider, is the, the way to turn people on. Um, do, do you agree with me? And what, what else – are we going to plan in the future? I a hundred percent agree with you. And just to add to it, um, you know, one, obviously one of the beauties of a meal is you get to share it with someone it's the social aspect. Right. And I think that cider is very much the same in the same vein. Personally, that's why I love the 750 mil format. Um, because I think when you crack a cider, ideally that should be shared with someone. Right? You're going to be sitting down, maybe on a patio, maybe you're having a meal, whatever it is. I like that format because it allows you to share that same drink with someone else, uh, very much like wine. Um, but yeah, no, I completely agree with you. I'm excited about um, you know new, um, like as you just described, indie uh, folks in the cider world. Uh, really just coming out with creative things and also um, spreading awareness of what, you know, cider can, uh, can be. Oh man. Thanks so much, Pete. Um, wow. This is great stuff. Deacon John. I had Deacon John. I had the new country gold. I had uh, the, the Kingston black reserve. I'm up here at uh, Greenland, New Hampshire at the bird dog cider. And you guys are going to keep hearing a lot more about them. Um, I think that Pete's going to become a, a leader up here in New Hampshire in the farming and food community. And congratulations, man. Thanks for having us up. Uh, Pete Endres, thank you so much. Cheers to our engineer, Armin Spingen. I'm Jimmy Carboni. We'll catch you next time on Beer Sessions Radio. All right. Thank you. Beer Sessions Radio is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. Food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.